right, guys, you're tuning into the unconventional author surrounding myself with people that know their stuff because I sure don't. Joining me today is uh, an author of an interesting book called Antlands, and then there's a sequel called Anasland, uh, which is a sort of post apocalyptic, takes place in the future uh, book. Uh, joining me today is, is it Genevieve or Jean Vier? It's Genevieve. Genevieve. Genevieve Morrissey. Genevieve, thank you so much for uh, being here and joining me for this episode. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. So uh, let's just start with the, the beginning. So is Antlands your first novel? Antlands is the first novel that I decided to actually publish. I've written novels since I was 12. Oh, wow. That's a lot of novels at my age now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. You're, you're, you're as, as young as the day. Don't fool yourself. Um, it's late in the day here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, if you guys don't know, uh, Genevieve is in the Eastern time zone. And I'm in the Pacific time zone. So uh, what can you tell us about uh, Antlands, your most uh, recent novel? And maybe... um. Is that the most is that the most recent one you've published? Have you published novels before that? Published? No. Okay. Written? Yes. And it's not my most recent. Of course, Anna's Land was published after Antland since it's essentially a sequel. Okay. I had them both ready to publish at the same time, but I wrote Antlands first. Okay. Um, it's uh, it's a departure for me. Most of what I've written so far in my life was historical fiction or literary fiction and a lot of nonfiction. I really like history and I write about it. Um, my son-in-law said, Mom, why is so much fantasy written so badly? So I said, it doesn't have to be that way. And I tried to write a good one, one that was well-written. And that's why it exists. And then the pandemic came along and there was nothing to do, so I published it. Okay. Um, so the previous books you've written since you said you've been writing since 12, uh, were those just, it was for fun? You didn't have the intent on publishing them? And then... Well, when I was 12, I was reading Writer's Magazine way back. I was in the Pleistocene, I think. <laughs> if I'm right about that, I get those mixed, the Jurassic and the Pleistocene kind of mis mixed up. But anyway, it was a long time ago. And I read some advice to young writers that said, the way to write a book is to write a book and then revise the book and then revise it some more and keep working on it. And when you feel you have every word in that book as perfect as it can be, open the bottom drawer of your dresser, drop the manuscript in, close it firmly and go write another book. And I have a really big drawer so I just kept doing that for a really long time. Yeah, I've heard that too, that when you write a book, just set it aside and then come back to it as if somebody, as if like you're reading something somebody else had written, noticed something, it's time to- Oh change. gracious, I never went back to any of those. Are you kidding? They were terrible. This, this was to ensure that you don't publish too soon before you really get the hang of things. And I didn't get the hang of things for a long time, I guess, because I never felt like I wrote anything that anybody would be interested in. Oh. 
but people did seem to like Outlands. And as I say, pandemic, I was quarantined. What the hey? Yeah, I think that happened. I mean, it happened to all of us. But I think uh, as authors, it doesn't affect us as much as um, people, I guess, who are more extroverted and more outgoing and just have to be out there. I mean, we're already used to cooping ourselves up and writing. And so now when you have to, because there's some pandemic out there, uh, more opportunity for us, I guess you can say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least um, at least you weren't burning your stories like J.D. Salinger apparently was in his latter days before he passed away. So the uh, rumors went. Uh, Might have been better if I had. I mean, think of all the trees, but yeah, they're around somewhere, I guess. I'm not going to publish um, most of the books that I've written. They're, well, even uh, Atlans, I didn't write it to publish it. I published it because circumstances made it seem like a better idea than it ever seemed. And to be honest, the first version of it's about 390,000 words long. I write books for the people that I love and they tell me what they want in them. And they always want themselves in it. That, that's the main thing, they want themselves in the books. And I put them in and I put in all the things they want me to put in and they're very long and they're very personal and my friends and family love them because they have all the things that they wanted and they're not really fit for public consumption. I pared Atlans down considerably, <laughs> took out most of the personal stuff and I think made it fit for publication, but I don't, I'm not really interested in, in doing that. Um, I don't think of myself primarily as as a writer, or maybe I think of myself as a writer, but not an author. Publishing my stuff isn't all that important to me. Expressing myself is extremely important. And as you've probably already guessed, I'm not a great talker. I'm not really good at that. So I have to write to get it out. Oh, don't misjudge yourself. I, uh, I think you're doing quite well here in the podcast so far. Um, from your website, it says you like solitude and good cooking. Um, I, the whole solitude part is um, shouldn't be striking to anyone. I think uh, don't all authors, because you tend to be introverted, like our solitude. Plus, I think if you don't like solitude, you're not going to be doing a lot of writing to begin with. Um, but what's interesting is it says you also like good cooking. So, and I do too. So it makes me think, uh, those must be the two uh, traits we have in common with hobbits, uh, staying <laughs> in our house and just, I like to think of myself as a uh, Bilbo Baggins in a, in a sense, uh, especially being that I like to think of Canadians as we live in this, it's like living in the Shire. We live in this nice, pristine, beautiful landscape, but occasionally we get restless and then go, I'm going to go on an adventure. And so we travel to some exotic locale and and then for me the adventure gets a little too real and i'm like oh, i want to go home uh it's just one thing i noticed when i, I uh, looked at your website um so you said you spend a lot of time talking to scientists uh as a science fiction author how much time do you think we should spend on that or is that just again it's a thing you like to do and then you find out some information and say, hey, I'm going to put that into my book. 
Well, I didn't choose to spend my time talking to scientists. I actually started out in college as a biology major. I was going to be a scientist. I'm fascinated by science. I love science. But I married a science, a scientist. And consequently, my social circle is mostly scientists. And um, in the last 10 years or so, it's become mostly scientists and medical doctors. I don't find them the most fascinating conversationalists, except maybe my husband. Well, definitely my husband. Oh, he's he's wonderful. Of course, he's conversation is stimulating in every way. Mostly, I don't find scientists all that interesting, but I I do occasionally learn really interesting things. And a really interesting thing that my husband brought to my attention about 10 years ago, actually, was that some scientists, some neuroscientists were doing little experiments with rats and I never really quite understood them, but they attached some kind of things to the rats' heads, to their brains, and the rats became apparently telepathic. Now, I have never been able to track down the paper again and I, Yes, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to find out that it was withdrawn because there was some something wrong with the study. But it got my husband and I to talking one day when he after he'd shown me this, it was fascinating to read. And he said, you know, if I were going to write a science fiction story, which I had never written a science fiction story or even considered it at that time, if I were going to write one, it would be about two races and one was telepathic and one was not telepathic. And they were at, at loggerheads with each other because they couldn't understand each other. But they found one person who was both telepathic, but thought like a non-telepathic person because he, he was pretty convinced that the problem with, with telepathy would be that, you know, with everyone influencing everybody else's thinking, that it, it would be groupthink all the time. And he said, you know, the, so this, this one person who can do it both ways helps them to settle their differences because it's sort of a bridge between the two. And so I, when I started writing Outlands, I thought of that and I thought, yeah, I'll do that. And I got about three chapters in and my husband, who was trying not to tell me because he thought it would upset me, but he finally confessed that what he had in mind was that the good guys would be the telepaths and the bad guys would be the non-telepaths. He thought telepathic people would be cooperative, you know, um, all sorts of things that we both like people to be rather than argumentative and, and everything like that. And so he thought they'd be the good guys. So I wrote it completely backward. But things like that make it interesting to live with a scientist. They think very differently than I do. They come up with ideas I probably wouldn't come up with think things are interesting that I think are dead boring. And I, I think that's very broadening. I think all of my books have a little bit of science in them, I think. And when I put science in a book, it's right. It's not impossible. It's not some crazy thing that anybody who knows what I'm, you know, what I'm saying says, okay, that's wrong. It may not be possible. It may not be happening at this point. But for example, Another thing that influenced writing Outlands was I said, how long is it going to be before genetic modifications are being done to solve, for example, mental illness, which we don't we don't have very good treatments for mental illness. And he said, it's happening already. And very soon after that, we found out that Dr. Hu, I think his name was in China, 
got in trouble for CRISPR experiments on human embryos, which is the start of that. So nothing that I put in my books is, as I say, impossible. Maybe telepathy, but maybe not. Um, so, so going back to the rat example, they, were the rats, like, did they have wires attached to their brains and the wires yes. attached? Was it from one rat to the other or was it? Just no, okay. that was the surprising part. Their brains were being stimulated separately and yet they, it was sort of a follow the leader thing when what one did, the other did. It was not very, um, the experiment, even at the time, even to me, a non-scientist did not seem, the study didn't seem terribly rigorous. It was, it was very much a pilot study. Um, you know, can this be made to work? Can, would this be interesting and so forth? And as I say, I've never been able to track it down again. However, other experiments have been done um, with, you know, neuro, neuroscience is being done that suggests that brains are, um, more plastic than we realize and possibly could be brought into sync with one another, at least in in small ways. I I think that's very interesting. So the rats were it was like the telepathy is all wireless. They had wires to their brains, but there weren't wires between the rats. They were just as all no. through the air. They had wires for uh, to allow the scientists who were doing this experiments to uh, you know, plot their brain waves, small devices on their heads, not large ones to control them, but they all had the same device. And for some reason that seemed to make them behave similarly. As I say, I wish I could reread the study. I'd be a lot clearer on the details. At the time, the only interesting thing was the, the conversation that it stimulated between my husband and me. Um, I tried to get him to write the darn story, but he was having none of that, so I had to write it myself. You're the writer, he's the scientist. I'll tell you, scientific writing is another animal altogether <laughs> from creative writing. I worked for many years um, translating scientific writing into something other people could understand. That was my job. That's what I got paid to do, and it is another language. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I bet for sure. Um, so I noticed with one of your books, you have a Sarah Morrissey who helped edit it. Is she related to you? <laughs> that's right. I did publish another book. Yes, that's my daughter. Well, that's kind of cool. It's got um, the family involved. Well, she uh, she called me up one day and she said, Mom, have you ever heard of the Raffles books? And I said, by coincidence, Sarah, just yesterday I went in a bookstore and I found this book of, you know, the, the, the Amateur Cracksman, which is the first of the books about Raffles, the, the jewel thief. And I read it this weekend and she said she had gone into a used bookstore in her town on the other side of the country and bought the same book, different, different edition of it, but the same book and read it the same weekend. And she said, this is meant to be it's hard to understand. I know you know the social history of the Edwardian period. Let's annotate it together. So we did. And it's on Amazon. And if you want to read all about Raffles, the, the 19th century jewel thief, it's all there. I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. However, if you really are interested, 
you can go to the website raffles redux and see the whole thing for free this is not this is not a money-making thing we were asked to put it on amazon because some people wanted to put it like on their tablet and so forth so yeah so for those of you listening raffles was this uh thief and he was immensely popular in like the latter 19th early 20th century i yes, want to say right. and um his books were considered to rival that of sherlock holmes and even the guy who wrote raffles uh was the brother-in-law of sherlock i think um sir arthur Klein doyle who wrote sherlock holmes um that kind of made me think that it would have been interesting if they had done a crossover piece a century ahead of marvel and all their crossover films where raffles is the thief and sherlock has to find him because it would be like these two titans just going at it trying to you know one trying to i mean carmen san diego wouldn't have squat on that um story if it ever existed but hey who knows maybe uh now that i put the idea out there somebody out there hmm, there's a ton of fan fiction you can take my word for it there's a ton of fan fiction that exact thing ew hornung who wrote the raffle stories always wanted to do that but but uh arthur conan doyle wasn't having any of it he um he got he was the one who suggested actually to his brother-in-law that he continued to write about a character called Stingaree that Hornung had written about earlier it was a an Australia a thief uh, not very much like Raffles but he was a, a sort of a highwayman in Australia Hornung lived in Australia for a while and was very much influenced by his time there and uh um Arthur Conan Doyle was the one who suggested to his brother-in-law that he should write more about Stingaree, and instead um, Horning wrote about Raffles, who was a thief, but back in London, because he lived in London by then himself. And then afterwards, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was very Victorian in his outlook, was very upset that <laughs> it was very successful, and people were reading these stories about a thief. He was a bad man, and he wasn't punished for it. So poor Horning had to write a lot of stories that made it clear that Raffles suffered terribly for his, for being such a bad person, <laughs> and he would ne they would never write a story together. <laughs> oh well, I guess we got the fan fiction to always make us wonder. Sometimes conjecture and possibility is better than uh, something that actually exists and may not be exactly what people thought or fans would want or. Um, I mean, the potential is always greater than the uh, possibility. Um, so you have a sequel to Antland, Anisland. Um, I got two questions. So why are the humanoid robots called ants? And what's the meaning behind the name Anisland? Well, they're, they're not robots. They are humans. They are genetically modified humans. Um, they're called ants because they behave alike. People saw them uh, working. Well, they were they were um, made to be workers, and they worked very hard. And they people thought that they had an ant-like aspect to them, so they called them ants. They're not that's not actually what they were originally called. And the meaning of Anna's Land is that one of the characters, in fact, one of the principal characters in Antlands, is named Anna. And she leaves the continent with her aunts. She, not to give anything away, except I am, she's a half aunt herself, and she takes some aunts and other half aunts and goes off 
and founds a new society in which ants and people live together quite happily on an island and it's called Anna's Land. Oh, I completely like see like when I saw it, I always kind of read read it like Annapolis or like <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't realize it's like there's because there's no apostrophe, it's Anna's land. Okay. Exactly, exactly. I am going to bring this up with my cover designer because I had it Anna's land with the apostrophe, and he said, Oh no, 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 it'll look much better on the cover if we take the apostrophe out. And I went for that. I should have stuck to my guns, clearly. Yes, no, maybe so. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's more mysterious. Anisland, what could that possibly be? Maybe somebody read it for that reason. Uh, so um, does the second book follow immediately from the last one, or is there a significant amount of time between? You no, know, there's 20 years pass. OK, wow, so pretty, pretty. Uh, it's pretty quick. Pretty significant amount of time. Wow. Uh, so you had mentioned earlier uh, some science. It's not all science, but it sounds like it's some science subjects you find boring, and some are more interesting. Because I mean, if you have a biology major, I mean that's science. You obviously went for that. Uh, would you say that's true, or have I just completely missed the mark? Whether some science is more interesting than others? Oh, yeah. Do you find some science more oh, interesting than others? Yes, definitely. I um, I wasn't a big fan of the so-called hard sciences, chemistry and physics. I like biology a lot. Biology is about people. I like to read about people. I don't particularly like people. Uh, not as much as I should, maybe, but I do like to study people. And I always thought biology was fascinating. I like things like astronomy and stuff too, but um, yeah, I, I mean, and neuroscience is probably the most interesting. No, 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 wait. My husband's a biochemist, so I better say biochemistry. Biochemistry is the most interesting, but neuroscience is right behind it. You you, you can say what you want. You, you guys are married. He's not gonna like get upset. He knows the rules, so I've heard. <laughs> not, married, not married myself, but uh, um, the reason I asked is because um, I, I like, I would just say in general, I like just the world and what it has and all the information in it. But there are some subjects I like a lot more. Like I, I'm actually the opposite. I do like physics and how things work. And I do like astronomy and mathematics. Um, but lately in the past couple of years, I've been devoting myself to just I think just because of my perceived state of like the state of the world is in at the moment, I've uh, spent a lot of time just dealing with like the social sciences, like economics and sociology and psychology and trying to understand people and why they act the way they do. And um, maybe even going into subjects that aren't necessarily science, like, you know, religion and politics and all the stuff that gets people triggered and tense and angry and, and or as I like to put it subjects that get the heart racing and boiling the blood and i've often said to myself i haven't really said this out loud that i kind of do it out of a feeling of a bit of personal responsibility just to keep myself in, informed yes that's very important especially lately yeah 
we're seeing the results of people who are uninformed having maybe a little too much to say about policy that hasn't been a good thing at all no um what's even more interesting was uh i watched a documentary in 2009 called earth 2100 and it was about sort of like projections and predictions about where the world's going to go uh, given population increase but also increase the standard of living and so you start seeing it's basically just you know taxing the system of resources but i try i, I started watching just briefly a bit of it again and then one of the things it mentioned was plagues around the world and i'm like holy crap because this was 10 years ago and i was talking about not coronavirus specifically but knowing it was gonna come and um i'd also watched a box episode called the next plague and they had said it's not a matter of if but when and then three months later the coronavirus mm -hmm. broke out but for me that documentary really just put things in perspective. And so when you feel like that's coming up, then suddenly all these problems aren't just coming out of nowhere. It's like, oh, that was gonna happen. That was expected. This is why this is happening. And so I think at least when you have that perspective, you have an idea of, okay, this is where we can go about fixing it or how we can go about fixing it but as you said like we're starting to feel some effects like yeah like it it's the system and mother nature and the planet is starting to wake us up a bit to um i guess you can say the, the state of the world so uh i mean i hope civilization doesn't collapse but uh i guess only time will tell uh yes well as long as we don't destroy the earth, which sometimes it looks to me like we're bent on doing, collapse in civilization is followed by rebirth. And that's very interesting. I'm, history is my, is my subject. It's what I, end, what I ended up studying after toying with biology and then uh, engineering was history, ancient history. I was a classics major. And uh, of course, uh, one of the things that the various scientists and docs that I deal with all the time have been talking about for quite a long time, 10 years at least, is pandemic. And of course, the, the, uh, the uh, Obama administration had a whole task force set up expecting pandemic. Um, and for me, that was, that was interesting and very familiar because, of course, studying ancient history, I know that as soon as trade increased worldwide, and the more a trade increased worldwide, the more plague and disease followed right along with trade. That's what happens. And now, when I was a kid, and that was, as I say, a very long time ago, I knew some people who had gone to Europe once. It was a huge deal. I knew guys who had been in Europe in the war, I knew guys who had been in Korea in the war, and then I started knowing guys who were going to Vietnam in the war, but that was how people traveled, ordinary people. Rich people traveled, ordinary people did not travel very much. Now everybody travels. It's a common thing. Everybody travels. If they're like me, every time they travel, they come home sick. I always get a cold or the flu or something because they're being exposed to things they haven't been exposed to in their home country and at home. 
And I didn't like hearing it, but when my various scientists and doctor friends said pandemic is coming, I had to say to myself, you know, that's, that's absolutely predictable. Of course it is. Of course we're going to have pandemics because the world is so linked now. Globalism isn't just a, you know, an economic thing. Globalism is people going to other places on the globe and getting germs they've never been exposed to before. And so I'm not particularly surprised by the pandemic. I imagine we'll deal with it. I, I do get a little, I mean, these RNA vaccines are, are going to change the world. And they came about as these things always do because, because they were needed, not because somebody just came up with them because wouldn't that be interesting? That's not how science works. Um, we are also unfortunately overtaxing the resources of the world creating too much garbage, changing the climate. I don't know if we, if the, if the earth can survive that. Um, as long as it's, I guess, you know, that, that hasn't happened before in history that I know of, and I've studied a lot of history. So I don't know how that's going to go. I feel like I have a pretty good idea how these pandemics are going to go. They're going to go like the Black Plague did. They're going to go like cholera did when it was for the Asiatic cholera hit, you know, all those things. But I don't know about what we're doing to the world. I would like to write about it, but I don't think I'm quite good enough to write the, the novel that opens everybody's eyes. I, I'm, not, I'm not going to write the jungle and alert people to the the abuses in the meatpacking industry that are killing them and you know that kind of thing that's that's i'm not that good but i wish somebody would i wish somebody would write something popular enough to make people read it and stop and think but maybe ominous enough to really make them think really make them a little scared because that's what it's going to take people are scared of pandemic now and I think they'll be taking it more seriously from now on. We we talked about pandemic and then SARS petered out and H1N1 didn't turn out to be the disaster everybody thought it was going to be. And people, oh, it's fine. Well, it's just going to happen sooner or later anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, that's what I thought about coronavirus when it first came about. I mean, I thought it was like SARS and H1N1 yeah. and all those other ones where it was just going to be something that was going around and fizzle out. And then for me, what really woke me up was um, I was working in construction at the time and they had a meeting and they said, oh yeah, a guy at a site down the street got it. And I'm like, holy crap, this is uh, getting serious. And suddenly everyone was going for the hand sanitizer and they started implementing the masks and the social distancing and the people doing layoffs because they didn't want to feel safe here. And that's when it was like, okay, this is a, this is big. This is different. This is a, this is serious. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, you said, I wish somebody would write something eye-opening and wondering who that person would be. You don't have to look any further because you're looking at him, Genevieve, looking at that guy. <laughs> well, do it, do it, do it. Um, well, I, I'll just uh I'll just bounce this off of you. So um, you know, I'm glad I've had you on because you're you have, you have a post-apocalyptic novel and I am writing a post-apocalyptic novel and you said something comes about and my novel is exactly about that it's about post-apocalyptic but civilizations making a comeback 
And so when people ask me, what was the cause of the collapse in the first place? I say, it's not a singular event. So in most post-apocalyptic, it's what's called a singular event where everything's fine. Suddenly there's a nuclear war. Next week, everything's gone to crap or there's a virus. Suddenly things go to crap. Um, Asteroids, suddenly things go to crap. I do have an event that kind of undoes humanity, but there's this long, like slow decline building up to that. And so I deal with that out with the fizzle as opposed to a bang. And so the backstory is loosely over the course of the 21st century, things slowly start to decline. So you see things like, you know, NATO failing, the EU dissolving, um, people becoming a lot more local they talk about i mean you know nationalism plays into that you see uh people eating a lot more locally you see um uh, governments basically dissolving and so like it, it goes from say like a national to a state to eventually a city level so that at by the time you get to the early 22nd century the world's just this patchwork of city states that have stability but they're in seas of just decay but for those city states you may see things that have improved like you have like you know decent transit systems you have tradesmen that you know get paid well because they're just so integral to fixing things and redoing things and jerry-rigging things um but I even getting to this whole point of because the city states are so distant from each other and they may not have like decent roads connecting them. Everyone's really heavily dependent on the internet. And so there's that. And then there's this event that I call the all silence that comes out of nowhere and fries electrical grids across the planet and causes auroras that bathe, like they, they go all around the globe. And so that's the event that just um, undoes humanity but it, it's already after we've been on this slow decline for a while and so in my novel or my novel series should i say when they rebuild civilization it's just a hey let's uh really take a good look at ourselves why we are the way we are why we act the way we do why we feel the way we do and let's try to learn from history and you know let's, let's do it right this time let's uh <laughs> yeah let's do it right this time exactly <laughs> But as I said, in order to like understand what right is, you really got to take a deep look at all these um, events and human behavior. And uh, I mean, again, that's why I said earlier, I'm studying this because I'm just trying to find an answer, quote unquote, or, you know, get as close as I can so that it is believable. And it is, uh, okay, we have things we have to wake up to, but we also have sort of a path that maybe can lead us out. But the reason it's, it's been taking so long is because I thought I was going to find the answer and it's going to come out of my house going, oh, guys, I got it. We just we just all got to do this and it'll be fine. And I said, that's not going to happen in the first book. That's not, probably not going to happen by the end of the fourth book. But I have an idea. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, that's where uh, I am. Well, as a, a historian, I have a degree in history, so I think I can call myself a historian. Sure, I am sure. going to anyway. Um, history supports you. I mean, um, empires and so forth fail in all different ways. But a very common one, of course, and our own Western history is full of this, so you won't have any trouble 
identifying a few that I'm speaking of, um, that things go downhill. Um, national government becomes ineffective. S local strongmen become more powerful than the national government. Things break up, things break apart. That's a very common way for societies to fail, civilizations to fail. Um, there are other ways, but that's a very common one. And they've come back in different ways. And I have to say some of them have come back better than they were when they failed. And some of them I look at kind of longingly. <laughs> Sometimes I wish, for example, William the Conqueror hadn't won at Hastings. I really think what the British had going before the, the Norman conquest was better than what replaced it. They've, they've improved since then, but that's just a personal opinion. But history supports, supports your, uh, your thesis, your, yes, it's fiction, but after a lot of writing, I realized that is what people are talking about when they give you the advice that you can't write what you don't know. Everything you write has to have happened at least to somebody. It doesn't have to have happened to you, or it will lack that ring of truth. It can be personal, like don't write about loss if you've never suffered a bad one. And it can also be, don't write about the end of civilization if the only thing you can think of is just one day everything went to hell. You need to know more than that and you need to put it in your writing and then it has a feeling of truth that people can relate to. People are people. We haven't come out of the trees long enough to have evolved very much farther than we were when we first did that. We still behave the same. Um, as an ancient, you know, I studied ancient history, the first literature I read is 6,000 years old. And when you read it, you say to yourself, oh my gosh, I know these people. I know their problems because we haven't changed very much. And so um, you can always look to history to give you an idea of how things might go. And if you've based your, your writing on, on something that's actually happened repeatedly, it will seem true to people, even if it's got stuff in it that, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be very interesting if you just retold the fall of the Byzantine Empire or something. Everybody said, well, I can read the history of the Byzantine Empire anytime. But if it has characteristics of the fall of the Byzantine Empire, but has none of the details the same, that's fine because that will, that will make it seem real to people. That will make it, people relate to it and also you know, if you if you can think of some totally original way for society to come back, maybe better this time, that's good too. That's where your imagination comes in. That's that's why writing nonfiction is a completely different thing from writing fiction. And I've written a lot of nonfiction. I like it, but you don't get to you don't get to put your own ideas in there. You, you know, it's pretty much you got to stick to the facts. You can you can come back with anything you think might happen. And if it's based on things that have happened, could happen, that are natural things for people to do, that could be very interesting. Probably will be. Yeah. Um... It's not one day everything's okay and all kumbaya and wonderful. I mean, it's a slow climb, four volumes at least. Oh, for uh, civilization coming back? At least. 
oh yeah this was originally one book then two then four and it, i wouldn't be surprised if it's eight but um given the scope of what i'm doing that's understandable and i think i could slug it out i've been working on it for uh the better part of eight years and i'm still into it uh probably more into it because i have a better idea of what it looks like in my head um but yeah uh i would rather do this than science papers because i do like reading about science but in order to get that information this guy's got to look at like hundreds of hours worth of just data pouring over it and i would get bored out of my mind after a while and just uninterested uh and another thing to remember is i do have an idea that are suggestions i want to give in my book but at the end of the day i'm a storyteller i'm not a politician or social scientist or engineer or whatever throwing it out there uh but um you had mentioned earlier vacation and how only rich people did it i uh do this thing called dead authors where i act like i'm inviting a dead author onto my podcast to interview yes I, I listened to um oh mary okay well, sorry who mary shelley oh yeah that was the uh first one we did that was kind of our pilot mary shelley episode but i i had oscar wilde quote unquote on and i was grilling him about how you figure out traveling and vacation when you don't have the internet because i'm trying to plan a vacation in europe and i'm always like what's the train schedule like where do i get the flights what do i need to know about this city and i just boom right there like and i always thought to myself if i didn't have access to that how would i have figured it out and it's usually something along the lines of you go get a guidebook or you just talk to somebody in an actual travel agency. But yeah, I can see how if you had money, it made sense because you didn't have to worry about deals and you probably knew someone that had a place that would show you around. And uh, and that that's our little aside on how you travel when you don't have the internet, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> you know what I think it's time for? I think it's time for bad writing advice. So bad writing advice is a little segment I do in these podcasts where I ask the author, what's the worst writing advice you've ever received? I've asked a bunch of people so far, no one's beaten me on writing advice. So uh, I'm going to ask you what some of the worst writing advice you've had. And I'm going to describe mine. And uh, we'll see who who uh, wins. Well, I'm going to lose this soundly because I have to say, I don't listen to advice, so I can't say that I've ever really gotten any bad advice. I don't ask people's advice. I wouldn't listen to them if they gave it to me. I like to find my own way. I don't remember getting any bad writing advice. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to mess up your segment. It sounds fascinating, but I don't have any to share. Wah, wah, wah. I know. I'm sorry. Um. Okay. Well, I, I I'll just okay. I'll I'll share mine. If you've listened to the podcast before, you guys are gonna hear this a million times. Uh. Again. Um. I don't even know if it was really advice. To be honest, I think a lot of it was really unsolicited. The guy just said it. But um, one of the main things I was told once was by a guy that. I had to know the intricacies of etiquette and fine dining because I might have to 
woo and charm some rich guy into promoting and marketing my novel um, for me. And then somebody said, oh, no, same guy, same guy said, I should have good handwriting, like with my actual hand, because if I autograph a book and my handwriting's not good, people are going to think something's wrong with me, and then they're not going to want to read the novel. And this was given by a guy who tried writing a book and failed. And so that was his extent with the uh, world of literary, the literary world. So uh, somebody I don't think you should listen to. And I think most people here would agree with me. <laughs> okay, nobody, I guarantee you, nobody will ever top that for bad advice. You should have good manners so that people don't want to sit with their backs to you at the dinner table because you've discussed them. <laughs> but no rich person is ever going to market your book for you. <laughs> and has this man seen autographed books? Has he ever seen one? Because they all are signed terribly. Writers have terrible handwriting. Especially if they sign anybody who signs a lot of autographs, their signature is going to look like crap because they've done it a bazillion times. <laughs> okay, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. If 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 you have to have good handwriting to be a successful writer, I am going to be the biggest failure who ever lived because my my handwriting is terrible. <laughs> no, no, don't say that, Genevieve. No. This is said by a guy who needs to just stick to the world of construction and whatever other Ponzi money-making schemes he's going after and just leave the literary stuff to the experts. Anyway, that's been bad writing advice. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, yeah, wow. That's not even writing advice. <laughs> that's eating and handwriting advice. Those are different. <laughs> okay, well, I enjoyed the laugh. Thank you. <laughs> May I never meet this person. <laughs> Uh, unless you come to the uh, West Coast, uh, probably won't happen. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, I frequently do, actually, but I'm, oh, I'm really? not going to avoid this person. <laughs> Where, whereabouts? Um, my daughter actually lives in Washington State, so. Whereabouts in Washington? Seattle? Uh, no, the other side of the state. She lives near the uh, Idaho border in oh, uh, like Spokane Richland. Or... Oh, Richland. okay. Yeah. yeah, I had a mom who used to live in Washington State before she retired and moved back to Canada. But like I've been down the west side of that multiple times. I even in 2019, I took a road trip from my mom's place to San Francisco for two days and then drove back. So uh, yeah, pretty nice drive. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Southern California and drove up the coast many times. It's very, very beautiful. Or it used to be anyway. That was a long time ago. We used, it was on a wagon train mules you know long time ago you know that what was... you're, you're always like okay I, I, this is something i've been thinking about in the back of my head but like i think the reason people are always making jokes about older people is because as a society we value youth too much we don't value age and experience and so that's why why i am the way age i am right now i'm going to start changing that so that by the time i'm older people will respect me um but it, good no, luck with that yeah go on i i i uh, i set i set high goals for myself um 
one thing I said was because I joined a gym this year and I've been working out and I'm going to do it consistently. I said, like, you know, by the time I'm older and I'm wiser, I'm going to be like Gandalf. And then I said, I'm going to be ripped Gandalf. That's going to be like my thing I got going on. So that's that's outstanding. If only I had thought of that when I was young enough to be ripped. Yeah. At this point, I'm just trying to be alive, Gandalf. Um, I survived the pandemic. Um, I feel very proud of that. I'm absolutely sure. So. Yeah, I just got my COVID shot actually on uh, last. So on Sunday, they said there'd be some effects you'd feel. I felt nothing. Really? Yeah, oh. I felt nothing. Oh, I felt like I'd been hit with a hammer both times. Hmm. Well, very good. That's wonderful. I always tell people that I must have like a super strong immune system. And my analogy, it's another Lord of the Rings analogy. So the analogy is always everyone else's immune system is like Denethor when he's like, Rohan has deserted us. <laughs> he's telling everyone to flee. And then my immune system is when Gandalf comes around, hits him over the head and says, prepare for battle. And then he's like, rallying everyone and then he says send these foul beasts back into the abyss so i imagine my immune system kind of like flinging its equivalent of trebuchets against like the covid virus particles which are like the orcs and uh, that's what i imagine is happening in my immune system when i fight disease because i always find that a hell of a lot more interesting than what actually is happening probably so um you know the way my husband describes how the immune system works and he frequently does um, it actually sounds kind of what, like what you're saying. I don't think he mentioned trebuchets, but you know, T cells and things like that, rallying boldly to take care of things. I have a, I have a bunch of analogies. There's a, the Roman shield wall where like my immune system, the Roman army against and the, whatever germs are their barbarian hordes. I also got, <laughs> I also got my science fiction analogies for like, you got one set of spaceships against the other set of spaceships might make a lot more sense because I guess things are just floating around in whatever fluid I have in my uh, body. Um, and that's uh, been a complete aside for you guys about uh, COVID and getting immunized. But uh, I think I added something because uh, I showed you how, hey, even in the most mundane of places you can find interesting stories like hey maybe your immune system is fighting a battle and that's uh i won't write it but somebody out there can for sure immune system fan fiction yeah immune system fan fiction um one last thing so uh Antlands, it, does it take place in 3522 AD? Is that like the time? You, or is that just something completely different? Well, they've rather lost track of time since things have not been going well for people for quite quite a few centuries. Um, actually, that was another thing that the designer of the book cover came up with. He thought that was a reasonable span of time. I didn't, I, I think it must have been around then. Long enough for things to um, crumble almost back to nothingness and then come back again because because that's kind of how I set it up. That that things went very badly for a long time. 
And I did that because I didn't want to have to deal too much with uh, the leftovers of our current civilization. I know people who do that so cleverly and bring in all sorts of, of little illusions. I, I did mention Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and Kumbaya, and those were the only two things from, the, from my time that I slipped in and I tried to do it subtly, but that's not really my thing, so I made it a long time in the future. But the actual date is not significant in any way. I mean, if you want to play those numbers on the lottery or something, that's fine. Go ahead. Let me know if you win. I don't play the lottery. I only, I only gamble with my life. I mean, uh, well, you know, I, I always say if I won the lottery, what would I do? And I wouldn't do what a lot of people do, but I also don't play the lottery. So maybe I should play the lottery. And then if I win, just show people like, oh, this is actually what I was going to do to begin with and show that I wasn't just making things up. I wouldn't have. Lottery I, I follow sure, through. Sudden money sure has ruined a lot of lives, and that started in ancient times, I can tell you. Sudden, suddenly having a lot of money is not really very good for people, it seems. So I don't play the lottery either. Also, I took statistics in school, and I know what the chances are. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I know I've, I'm probably never going to get it anyway. So kind of like being a super successful author, the chances are very minuscule. Kind of, yes. yeah, I guess we're kind of doing a gamble. But even if nothing happens, we do what we love. That's the important thing, right? If you are writing because you love to write, selling one book is wonderful. I felt like every word that I had ever written was worth the time that it took me to write it and pair it and hone it and make it the best word I could think of. The first time somebody said, oh, I just loved your book. Everything since then has been pure gravy. And if you feel like that, it's worth it. It's worth it to write. I'm not sure if you wanna be as rich as JK Rowling or something, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just wanna have enough that I could live off of it for the rest of my life, even if I don't sell anything else. Because um, I had another buddy of mine who was on the podcast uh, when I first started this. He said, if an alien being came to you and said, you're not going to sell any of these copies, would you still write it? And if you say no, then it shows, okay, you're kind of doing it for the wrong reasons you say yes it's because you're doing it because you love it and that should be first and foremost the reason you do it and then you know if you want to do the marketing and selling and all the business aspect that kind of comes secondary with yeah. like this, this craft i mean this is one of those things where again going back to my construction example you ask those people like you couldn't do this for money. Would you do it for fun? And the answer is always going to be like, "Oh no, dude, I don't." No, no, this is this is kind of a crappy job. Whereas with us, it's would you do it for fun? We, we would almost say yes. We would absolutely do yeah. it for fun. Yeah, I, I've always thought my husband was the luckiest human being I knew because he would do his job for nothing. He would do it if he had to pay for it. He would do it if he had to work a second job to pay somebody to let him be a scientist. 
I never felt that way about any job that I have. But I have always felt that way about writing. And in fact, I did write for nothing, not even not even the chance to hear a stranger instead of someone I gave birth to, or whose dinner I cooked nightly, and who was afraid not to say it, say, it's good. I like it. It made me happy. It said something to me. But the first time I got that boy, it was more than worth it, all of it, including the bottom book in the drawer that I will never look at again and hope to God nobody else does either. It was worth it. So, so sorry, you, you said your kids said the book was worth it, or you're just talking about your kids it, liking what- Oh, what I was saying was, I expect my, my daughter to say she likes my book. I gave birth to her. I remind her of that frequently. I expect my husband to say it because he doesn't dare not say it. I cook his dinner. I could put anything in there. He better make me happy or he's in big trouble. But the first time a stranger said, I really liked your book, it really spoke to me. All the books that I never put out for publication, all the books that I never will publish, all the books that I'll write and there'll be horrible failures and there, I'm sure there will be some, um, they're worth it too, that, that, that's enough. On the other hand, money's nice. Think anybody would turn it down? No, no one would turn it down. Uh, yeah, and your daughter should like it. You, you, you know, she needs to be grateful that you gave her life for sure. There's somewhere else I was gonna go with this, but I can't remember. Oh yeah, I uh, yeah, with me, I I gave some drafts to some people, and they read it and they liked it, and they really thought it was. Good. Lately, I've been part of a critique group, and I've been reading it, and so I've been going back and just adding some changes and polishing it up. And so, uh, given that I've got all this free time now, I uh, hopefully can get this fourth draft out a lot sooner than my third draft, and hopefully start the querying process for a literary agent for sure. Good luck with that. Thank you. So, uh, tell you what, one of the wrap this up uh let everyone out there know where can they get antlands and uh anna's land and your uh, other book the one with the annotations for the raffles thief uh yeah well the only place to get um the annotated raffles is on amazon the easiest place to get antlands and anna's land are on amazon they are available through other outlets like a books and things like that um, Anna's um, Atlans is coming out as an audiobook um, later this summer for people who don't like to read but want to know the story. And I think the narrator I got was very, very good, and people will enjoy it a lot. Cool. All right. All right, guys. Genevieve, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Me. Yeah, no problem. I'm the unconventional author, Nathan Ogloff. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll be seeing you on the next episode.